0: 1 Corinthians 15, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to be aware that tomorrow I'm going to send the email out to the church, and it's a church survey. And it's actually for myself as I'm going to be preaching the next number of weeks in Ephesians, I'm probably not going to start till not next week, but the week after that, but uh, it will help me as I'm preaching through that series. It'll be an eight-week series, and it'll help me understand your knowledge and where you're at before we go into the series, and at the very end of the series, I will have a survey again that will conclude that, and so I'll send that out to you tomorrow, and if you are not one that likes to do things on the computer. I'll give you a copy of that next week in, on a piece of paper. First Corinthians 15. Well, Abraham was 75 years old when he and his wife packed up their belongings, left their, the land of their fathers, and by faith they traveled hundreds of mile miles to the place that God had told them to go. Genesis chapter 12 talks about that journey and says that Abraham and Sarah went by faith. And and tagging alongside of them was his nephew, Lot, and his family. So Lot and his family and Abraham and his family, they went to this place that God had called Abraham to go Lot left, though, for earthly reasons. Lot came to this area, and Lot desired to be in the well-watered plains. He eventually went to live in Sodom. Lot lived his life to gain more wealth, to live a more comfortable life. And the difference between Lot and Abraham was the reason why they did what they did. Abraham, he had faith in God. He went to a place that God had called him to go, a place that that could have been dangerous for him, a place that was not, in human terms, guaranteed that it would be successful. But he went there trusting the Lord, and he trusted God. He had faith in God. What did he believe about God? What was his faith in God about Well, Hebrews 11 answers that question, and it says Abraham had faith. Abraham believed and obeyed God because he believed that God had a better reward for him beyond the life that he was living. Abraham moved to a country that could be hostile and difficult because he believed that God had another country, a heavenly country, a city that he would go to after he died. Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 10, gives this reason why he was motivated to trust God. The scripture says that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It says that Abraham and Sarah desired a better country that is a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city do you realize that the reason Abraham went to Canaan was because he was looking forward to going to heaven some people say people that person's so heavenly minded they're no earthly good first of all it's a terrible comment because actually, it's the exact opposite. The truth is, you can be no earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. You can be no earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. And Abraham and Sarah were heavenly minded, and so they obeyed God. Do you realize that what they pictured, what they viewed, what they, was, what they were promised was heaven. As a city, as a country, a city has streets and dwelling places. There are activities and parks and gardens and eating and drinking and fellowship and laughter. And, church, do you realize that's heaven? Like this view in American Christianity that heaven's this bright, cloudy place is not in the Bible. That's not true. That's not how the Bible describes heaven. Revelation chapter 2, I'm not there, there it there is. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, describes her, uh, heaven as a paradise. The tree of life is there. It's in the midst of that paradise of God. So you have the old paradise, that's the Garden of Eden, that, that man and woman were kicked out of that garden. But God has prepared a new garden, a paradise. It's called heaven the old paradise, in the Garden of Eden, there were all kinds of trees and fruits and other foods and other wonderful creatures. And do you realize, church, that when we imagine heaven, we imagine paradise, we should be imagining this new Garden of Eden God has for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 3, that he was caught up to paradise. The word paradise is a Persian word that comes from really this idea of the the Persian gardens that they had in what we call modern-day Iran. These Persian gardens were beautiful, expressive estates. They were kind of like walled-off national parks. They included all types of plants and fountains and lakes and trees and places to recline and places to fellowship. Jesus told the dying thief on the cross He was saved, and therefore, that he would meet him that day in where? In paradise. Heaven is not a a lower form, a lower bland form. No, heaven is a greater, more magnificent reality. Earth is the shadow. Heaven is the true reality of paradise. Christ right now lives in a resurrected body and he walks and he talks and he lives and he rules from this place we call heaven. Revelation 21 describes when earth's history is over. There it is right there. Earth's history is over. The scripture says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So, God creates a new universe. He creates a new earth. And I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So, you have this new creation God makes. And heaven is this city. It's called the New Jerusalem. And it comes, heaven comes down, and literally, it's the capital of the new earth. This is what God describes for our eternal existence. Think about some of the most beautiful places on this earth. If I were to ask you, what are some of the most beautiful places? What would you you say? Maybe you would consider something like the white sandy beaches of the Maldives with the clear crystal blue waters. Or maybe you would think of the dramatic landscape of Yosemite with the impressive giant sequoia trees and the waterfalls and the granite cliffs. I mean, we could go on and on and talk about some of the most beautiful places on this earth think about this if god has created this temporal earth in that way with that beauty think about what his new creation is going to be like those natural beauties on this earth they declare the glory of god and how much more so will the resurrected new earth god has for us it will declare the res- it will declare the glory of god The Bible teaches that we, like Sarah and Abraham, are to work on this earth, motivated by the fact that we soon will be with the Lord, and we will be in that new city, in that new country where the scripture says, for we have no lasting city. Like you think about Los Angeles, and I'm sure at one time it was a beautiful city. Does anyone remember if it was a beautiful city? Well, it's definitely not a lasting city, but we seek a city. There is a city we seek. It's the New Jerusalem. It's heaven, that is to come. And so that's where our hearts, our minds, our focus. In fact, that word "seek" is the idea that we are eagerly desire, we long for, we we want to put all of our effort into that thing which we love. You know, some people in this world they love sports. Some Put all their effort into their job. Some really enjoy entertainment. So their life is about watching the next, latest movies. And some people are materialists and hedonists and humanists. Love, they love power. They love money. They love sex, sex. They live for those things. They seek those things. And the scripture says that we are to seek what? Not what the Gentiles seek. That's what they love. That's what they pursue. That's what they think is valuable. We are to seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. So we're to put our minds upon these things. Colossians 3.1, if you have been raised with Christ, seek those things, desire those things, long for those things that are above. Well, what's above? It's not just talking about spatially. It's talking about in glory. It's talking about in heaven. It's talking about that new Jerusalem that God has prepared for us Seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I want you to imagine a mom, and early in the morning, she tells her children, hey, guys, we are going to go to the beach this afternoon. But you have some chores to do. Maybe you have some schoolwork to do, or you have some different things to do. And that idea of going to the beach in the afternoon, the reason she says that, it's supposed to be motivational, is it motivational? I don't know. Does it work? It sometimes works. But, you know, if you have a six-year-old in your home and they find out they're going to be the beach at 2 o'clock, you know, if it's 7 o'clock in the morning, guess what they're doing? Even if they have to do schoolwork and chores, they're getting their swim trunks on, right? That six-year-old's going to be prepared to go to the beach, right? And, and the kids, hopefully, we be motivated to do their schoolwork. The point is, because they have something they're longing for, they're seeking after, what they're doing right now will it prepares them for what's to come we have something far better that we're seeking after that we're longing for than this world there's a city there's a country whose maker and builder is god where christ our lord and savior reigns and lives What I want to do this morning with this sermon is I'm really right now in the rest of the sermon, I'm trying to really build within you a desire for that heavenly country to to demonstrate the teachers or the, the scriptures teach that our work on earth must be motivated by that heavenly reward because we live in a world that has affliction, we have pains, we have difficulties, we have relationships that are, that are struggles in our, in our life. We have family issues, we have concerns, we wonder what's going to happen with this and with that. The scripture calls this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, these are light afflictions, they're just for a moment, but the scripture also says that we don't look at those things which are seen, but we look at the things which are not seen. Because the things which are seen, the, the things of this earth, the, the politics, the material possessions, all those things, those are soon going to pass. But the things which are not seen, those things are eternal. And so though we visibly can't see them, we perceive them. We set our hearts and our minds upon them. We direct our attention every day to the heavenly realities we, we long for, we desire, we live, we're motivated by those Eternal things that we can't see now, but soon we will. And in our text of 1 Corinthians, verse 35 through 47, we get a glimpse of one aspect of this eternal dwelling, and that is our future resurrected bodies. And verses 35 through 49 encourage us To labor for the Lord now, knowing there is a resurrection to come. So these verses put our minds upon this future resurrection and encourage us to labor now for the Lord, knowing that there is a resurrection to come. And you say, well, where's the aspect of our labor? Look down in verse 58. Because in verse 58, because verse 58 is the conclusion of chapter 15, And he's saying, think about all that you've learned about resurrection in chapter 15 and then conclude with verse 58, therefore, therefore says, consider all the things I've already taught you about resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, perceiving Put in your mind upon truths, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So we labor now for the Lord, knowing there is a resurrection to come. What I want to do in this sermon is I want to to comfort those of you who have had loved ones that are believers in the Lord that have passed on. My desire in this sermon is to give you a longing, you a personal longing to be with Christ so you can have really the testimony and the words of Paul the Apostle can come out of your mouth where you say to be with Christ is far better. My hope for this sermon is that you would have spiritual eyes, that you would see the eternal things so clearly that you say, I want to give my life to Jesus today that you actually live your life for Jesus tomorrow, recognizing that what you do for the Lord now matters for eternity. And so I pray as we go into this that you will have that perspective and that heart, and I hope that it will minister to you in that way. And so what should we know? What should we know about the future resurrection that can motivate you in your labor for the Lord right now? Well, first of all, know this. Know your earthly body will die. Your earthly body will die. Now, I'll put a parenthesis around this, and that is to say, unless Christ comes back in your lifetime, okay? So if Christ comes back in your lifetime, you won't have a physical death. But for most of the population and for everyone that has ever lived since this time, they have had a time of death. So we should know this. Your earthly body will die. Look at verse 35. Paul writes under the inspiration of the scripture. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So if you remember in the previous weeks, Paul was correcting the church's wrong view of life after death. And so we've talked about this the past couple weeks. Some in the church believe that after you die, that your soul continues on without your body. So there's no resurrection of the body. That was their view. So evidently, they believe that Jesus died and rose again. But when we die, we won't have a resurrection. So Paul spent much, much of chapter 15 dealing with that and really proving that, yes, there will be a future resurrection of the believers and eventually even the non-believers at the very end of the great white throne judgment. So he talks about that resurrection and proves that from this text. But then notice in verse 35, Paul kind of transitions and he gives some questions that some who didn't believe in resurrection might ask. In fact, I don't think these questions are genuine questions. I think they're meant to mock or maybe even disarm those who believe in the resurrection. So notice verse 35, these that don't believe in the resurrection might say this, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul immediately rebukes the Really the tone, if you could say, of those questions, and that is verse 36. He says, you foolish person. Why were those who didn't believe in bodily resurrection fools? Why would he call them foolish? Well, it's because their worldview was that this is all there really is. Like This is the best life you get. And think about it. If you believe that you live in a body, you get to enjoy food and, and, and all the pleasures of this world, and then you die, and then you're just some kind of ghost that, that floats around what? Like the universe or heaven or the earth? I mean, does anybody really want that life? Like, that's not really enjoyable. So, I mean, what are you going to live for? Are you going to live to be a ghost? Who wants to live to be a ghost, you know? So, like, this is basically the best it gets right here. That, that's kind of their theology, right? And he's like, you're a fool, like... No wonder you're not motivated to live for the Lord. But also they're a fool, I think, because the Bible's very clear that there's a resurrection. Jesus taught that there is going to be a resurrection. In Mark chapter 12, the Sadducees, if you remember, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So they actually adopted the Greek philosophy, uh, the, the, uh, the doctrine of Greek philosophy that believed that there was no resurrection of the dead. Sadducees believed that, and Jesus rebuked them. And Jesus said that you do not believe the scripture. He says, you don't know what the scripture teaches, obviously. And so Jesus said this. He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? It's in the Bible. Hello, guys. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, that's Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not... God of the dead, but of the living. what Jesus was saying there is obviously there's a resurrection because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob they're not dead, they're actually alive. That's what he's t- saying there. Jesus is saying that that these individuals who had long died before Ab- or before Moses was on the earth they we're not dead any longer. They were alive. And I don't think that he was saying here, Jesus was saying that they've already experienced the resurrection. I think what he's saying is, is that they're not, kind of some, it's not a soul sleep. They're not these spirits floating around. These are actually people who are alive. They're in glory right now. So here's a question Abraham is alive right now. Scripture teaches it. Jesus says it. Abraham is alive. So what type of body does Abraham have right now? What do you think? And here's the answer. Here's my answer, at least. I don't know. (laughs) So there's a couple things we do know. We know Abraham died 4,000 years ago, approximately. We know that he lived first and then he died. We know that Jesus said that he's still alive. We actually know this as well. Luke chapter 16, Jesus told a story about a man named Lazarus and a rich man. And in that story was Abraham and Abraham was in paradise. Lazarus was reclining on the bosom of Abraham. And that would have been some type of meal they would have had. So here you have Abraham who has some kind of body, right? He's able to talk. He's actually, you know, Jesus quotes Abraham saying something in glory here. So there's, there's some type of body he has. They're able to obviously eat and fellowship and have that enjoyment. I mean, Lazarus, the, the, the lowest poorest guy on earth is able to talk to the, the patriarch of Israel. That's pretty incredible, right? And that Jesus kind of was showing that contrast, but just taking out that part of Abraham. I mean, so Jesus told a story and whether the story was actually true or not, it represented something. I think that was a reality. And that is that Abraham right now is in paradise and he has some type of body. The the answer to the question, what type of body he has, I think my point of saying this is this, is I don't think we know. The scripture isn't clear. The scripture is clear that everybody lives and they die. The scripture is clear that someday, the coming of Christ, believers will receive a resurrected body. The scripture is clear at the very end of time, at the great white throne judgment, The unbelievers will be resurrected to life. They will receive a resurrected body and they will be cast into the lake of fire. The scripture is clear about that. What's unclear is what happens right now in the intermediate state, which is interesting because that's what most people ask me. Like most people are most concerned about what is my, you know, grandma or my brother or whoever's in heaven. What are they like right now? Like what kind of body do they have? And I think the simple answer answer to that is we just don't know. There's two sides of it. Some people think, well, They're just a spirit. I don't think that's true. They get that really from the the passage that says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Interesting enough, that text doesn't say what type of body or spirit or whatever it is that you're present with the Lord in. I actually take a different view on that, and I believe that God has given us, after we die, we have some type of intermediate body. It's not the resurrected body. I do think there's some type of intermediate body. This is not a doctrine or a teaching I would Die for, okay? I might decide I'm wrong in 10 years, okay? So I reserve that right. But I, I get, let me give you some points for this because I think this is helpful. And so this is the part of the sermon that you should take out and say, this is thus says Ben, okay? Because I, don't, I wouldn't say I'm dogmatic about this, but I do think this is something that's indicated in the scriptures. I think one example, obviously, is the just mentioned, Luke chapter 16, where you have Lazarus and he's, in paradise, again, he's able to dip his finger in some type of water and some type of drink. And so he has, he has a finger. He is able to enjoy fellowship. Um, you have the rich man who's in hell, and he's experiencing pain. Like bodies experience pain, right? He has the taste buds. that He can be thirsty. He can speak. You know, Lazarus remembers the rich man. He remembers his time on earth. Uh, the rich man remembers his family. He remembers his five brothers. So you have all their memories intact. In Luke chapter number nine, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you have Peter, James, and John, remember that, on that mount? And they saw two people who had long been dead, Moses and Elijah, and those men were standing before them, and they had some type of bodies. They were able to be recognized. In fact, evidently, Moses and Elijah knew what was happening on earth. I mean, they weren't like, Jesus, what are you doing down here, right? They were like, wow, well, you're about to go die and you're about to be resurrected. And they're having this conversation and Peter, James, and John they are like, oh, what's going on here, you know? Let's build some tabernacles or whatever. But the point is, they were seeing some, someone with real bodies, right? And they were recognized. Or you look at Revelation. In Revelation, the saints in heaven are described as elders who have faces. They're wearing clothes. There are martyrs who uh, pray to the Lord in heaven. Last year, there was a, an individual that is now with the Lord in heaven. And I asked this individual, I said to him, you know, what? Um, how can I pray for you? How can I help you? And this person said to me, I, I pray for you every day. Well, this person was soon going to be in glory. And I said, I don't think that will stop. I think once you take your last breath, I think you'll probably keep praying for me. And my point is, is that what you see in the scripture is that there's some, these, these descriptions of people in this, these intermediate states, that they have some type of body. I mean, I think probably one of the best examples is Jesus. He's physically actually walking around somewhere. So I, I think that probably indicates that other people that are now in glory are doing the same. So anyways, back to thus says the Lord here. What we know for certain is that when we see Christ, we will receive our eternal resurrected bodies. And so to not live in light of that reality, that there's going to be a future resurrection of our bodies and a resurrection of this earth, is to live like a fool. If you you live like this is the life, this is all there is, then you're a fool. Notice verse number 36. He says, You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. I brought some seeds in my pocket here from home. I cut open an apple this morning. This is a honey crisp apple seed right here. That is so small, you can't even see that. That was the biggest seed I had in my house right there. Isn't that a beautiful seed? You know, it's shiny. It's kind of cute, right? Right? I mean, so that, that's an interesting seed. It's a beautiful seed. That seed in this seed has all the genetic information to become a wonderful, beautiful, honey crisp apple tree. Now, have you been to one of those orchards that have those trees? Those are really fun places to go. I don't think I've been to one of those in a long time. But this seed can germinate into one of those beautiful trees. How does it do that? What must happen before this seed turns into that wonderful tree? That's producing apples. Well, it must go in the ground. It must die right before it can germinate into something beautiful. Unless it goes into the ground, it can't turn into a mature tree. And so Paul here in these verses is using a seed like an illustration, He's saying your body is like this seed. Our earthly body has its own creative beauty. I mean, it's, it, there's. I mean, you might look at this seed and be like, "What's that about?" But honestly, if you were to Cut this open and look under a microscope and do all the stuff that you can do to to see what's inside of it. It'd be pretty incredible, right? There's actually a lot of beauty and creative design in this, but there's something more wonderful that God has for this seed, right? And this seed can't experience the the wonder of turning into a beautiful tree unless it goes in the ground. And that's what God's saying. Like you have a body, right? And you paint it up and you doll it up and all this kind of stuff. That's great. That's great. But your body is like a seed, and when it dies, if you're in Christ, God is able to bring it back to be something more wonderful, more beautiful than even the one that we have on this earth right now. So what knowledge can motivate you in your labor for the Lord? Know this. Someday, your earthly body, like a seed, will and it must die. Unless Christ comes back in our lifetime, Each one of you in this room right now, you have a date that God has set, and it's a date of your death. And here's the reality. You don't know when that's going to be. I mean, the reality is there could be someone in this room, and next week we have a funeral for you. And you could be young, you could be old. When I was in upper elementary school, I had a friend that I played. His name was Andrew... uh, Andy Hallbeger, we played together that summer. My brothers and I went to a gymnasium at the church that my dad was an assistant pastor, and we played basketball, and I can remember shooting half-court shots and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't really able to hit the half-court shots, but my brothers were. And he mowed the lawn for our church. Our, our families hung out. At the very end of that summer, he came home from vacation, got out of the car, so excited to go get the mail, isn't it? So he wanted to go get the mail. He crossed the street, when he crossed the street, got hit by a car, And he died. I can remember going to his funeral. I can remember seeing the casket and the picture of him up there. And I remember thinking to myself, that could be me. Am I ready for that? And, And even the thought, and maybe someone even said this from the pulpit, is, are you doing your best for Christ now? Because this could be you tomorrow. And it's with that reality that we must live every day of our life. So it's with that reality that we, we, we shepherd our children and we love our children. I think about that, that family, the Hallbegger family. They were godly people. We loved them. Our family was very close to them. But I think about that family, and I can imagine when they were at that funeral, the things that were going through their head, what were the conversations they had last? Did they prepare their son for eternity? He was a believer in the Lord, but did they prepare their son for eternity? I mean, I guess that's the questions that we should probably be asking ourselves. Like, Are we doing everything we can? to prepare our children, to prepare prepare our neighbors, to prepare ourselves for that reality. So what knowledge can motivate you to labor for the Lord now? Know your earthly body will die, and know your resurrected body will still be you in a distinct, glorious form. So look at verse 38. Scripture says, but God gives it, And the it there is the seed of our body on earth. So our earthly body, God gives it a body. That's a resurrected body. As he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. The seed of an orange tree produces a body, a tree of an orange tree. The seed of a sunflower grows into a body, a plant, that God has chosen for it to have. Each seed produces a mature organism after its own kind. That's Genesis 1 and 2, right? Seeds produce, or apple seeds produce apple trees, right? They produce after their own kind. That's Genesis 1 and 2. That's logic. Unfortunately, our schools aren't teaching that logic these days, right? But, but the scripture teaches that, and this is a great illustration for us as well. I was thinking about this apple seed right here. This is a golden delicious. no, this, no, this is honey crisp. And this is a honey crisp. Then we also have golden delicious. You like that? Which one's your favorite one? What's interesting is both the apple seed for the golden delicious and for the honey crisp, they're both apple seeds, but they're, they're different, aren't they? Like they actually will produce different trees. And actually, if you go to an orchard and they're all honey crisp there, each one of those trees are unique. Some are tall, some are short. Some have a lot of branches, some have few. You see what I'm saying? And what the scripture is saying here is that, is that we are like seeds. And when God gives us our new resurrected body, that God will give us a body as he has chosen. It will be distinct. Even our bodies right now, they're, they're unique. Isn't it amazing? You can just look at a sea of people. I look at all these people out here. And all of you are so different in so many different ways. And that's part of God's creative design, isn't it? The scripture says in Acts 17, 26, Paul preached that God made everyone from one blood, one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. In fact, I was reading this a couple years ago, 2018, Yahoo News. I wouldn't recommend that news, but I figured I'd pick a liberal one so you could see this was something that even they report. In a groundbreaking news study, This is just in the scenes, 2018. Scientists from these universities have concluded that each and every human alive today descended from just one couple who lived from between 100,000 to 200,000 years ago, maybe subtract a couple hundred thousand years. It's like, that's new. Well, actually, God's been teaching that for a long time. God created two people. And from that, God has given us a diversity of humanity. You have dark skin and light skin. You have tall, you have short. You have skinny, you have big boned, right? I mean, there's so many different varieties of people. Isn't that wonderful? And, it's, and, and I think actually the, the idea out there of that there's discrimination is actually kind of built in the idea, in the heart of pride. Because the fact is that if you look at someone else and you think that you're better than someone else because of how God created you, how much pride is that? Like, you're a unique creation by God. Like, you're special. And that's wonderful. And that person's special as well. Therefore, we should never boast in ourselves, in our beauty, in our athleticism, in our intelligence, right? Our boast must only be in the Lord. And we must never look at another creature, another human being and say, I'm better than them because God made me different. Now, actually, that's a celebration of the glory of God. When you see a sea of people and they're so different, you, could, you should look at that and say, glory to God for how he made us different and distinct. And that's what this text is speaking about. It's saying that your body's like a seed and, and we're all different. But when God gives us that resurrected body, you will still be you. So you're not going to be a completely different person. It's not like you're going to look in the mirror in heaven and be like, Who is that person? Are you going to be like, I don't even know who I am. You don't have amnesia, right? You are still you, but in a glorified form. And that knowledge should motivate you. Notice verse 38 down through verse 42. But God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. So then he uses these illustrations. Not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun. There's another glory of the moon. I mean, think about the sun and the moon, how wonderful they are. But they have their distinct glory. the distinct attributes that bring glory to each other and ultimately glory to God. It says, Another for the glory is the glory of the stars. Think about all the different types of stars there are out there. And each of them have their own unique attributes, their own unique glories. For star differs from star in glory. So it is. This is an illustration of the resurrection of the dead. Each person is unique on earth. But even more so, when God gives you your resurrected body, you will have a special glory that God will give you. A distinct splendor will resonate from your body to the glory of God. And think about that. How should that knowledge affect us now? I mean, the fact that you're going to have a new body, how should that affect you right now? I don't think it means that we say we shouldn't take care of our bodies now. But I think it's probably the opposite. I probably should take care of my body. I should take care of my body because God has given me this body, right? But I think also the application from this is I should use this body now that God has given to me. And I should spend and be spent for the gospel and for my family. I need to give my body as a sacrifice to the Lord, which is my spiritual worship. I need to do that for the sake of the Lord. I think another application is that we shouldn't worship our body now. I mean, can you imagine if I was like, everyone, can we just ooh and awe over this little seed right here? Isn't this amazing? Let me paint it up a little bit, you know? No, you probably would wait until we turn it would turn into a tree, right? And then we'd say, oh, wow, it's an amazing apple tree. We can be so vain, though, about ourselves, can't we? Beauty on earth is not found in a person who has the perfect Instagram picture, right? With no flaws and size zero jeans or whatever it is. Beauty, most beautiful people on earth are those who have their faces shine forth the joy of the Lord, right? I've seen people who have gone through some of the most traumatic things physically and they have a smile on their face and you see Christ, and honestly, you think, that's beautiful. And I've seen people who we might say in our world are the most beautiful people on earth, and they're nasty, they have terrible attitudes, they're stuck up, and honestly, they're not very beautiful at all, are they? Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. A woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. So the, the world's view of our body is that it's for me, it's for my pleasure, it's to boast in myself. Food's for the stomach, stomach's for food. But God counters that and says, no, the body is the Lord's. So your body is not yours, it's the Lord's. And so let's present our bodies to the Lord and use it for his service. So what should we know? Know that your resurrected body will still be you in a distinct, glorious form. And then last of all, your resurrected body will will be a body like Christ's. So what should motivate us is to think that there will be a day when I will be resurrected with the Lord. I will have his body resurrected much like his. Look at verse 42. So now he describes this resurrected body. So you're trying to imagine right now what your body is going to look like in heaven. Okay, so go ahead. You can imagine it right now. Verse 42. What is sown, so that's the seed of our earthly body dying, What is sown is perishable, so your body will die. What is raised, so when you're resurrected by the Holy Spirit, the second coming, is imperishable. So imperishable means that your body will never die. It's incapable of being destroyed. So your resurrected body will never be able to die. It will never get sick. Like, you know, there's no masks in heaven, okay? We don't have to wash our hands every 10 minutes to make sure we don't get germs. There's no danger like that. It's imperishable. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. So our physical bodies now are sown in dishonor. It's raised, or our next body, our resurrected body, will be raised in glory. So it will be a a beautiful, glorious body. In other words, you're going to look good. But it's not for the praise of you it's what? It's for the praise of God. People won't look at you and say, wow, look at you. They're going to say, wow, God's amazing. Glory be to God. Notice verse 43, it's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. So your resurrected body will be powerful. What does that mean? I mean, will I get to have the athletic ability that I've always wanted to have? Maybe. I don't know. I think probably it means that when we're on the new earth and we go for a, a hike with the seamers that we're not going to have to take too many breaks, right? We're going to be able to go on. Our bodies will be powerful. They'll be strong. Verse 44, it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. A spiritual body doesn't mean you're a spirit. What does that mean? Well, spiritual body means that you have been given a body by the Holy Spirit at the second coming of Christ. So you've been given a body by the Holy Spirit, and your resurrected body is fully controlled under the power of the Holy Spirit. It means the Spirit controls your body. You have a body given by the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual body, and it goes on to explain that in verse 45, as it is written, so he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a living spirit. Adam was made of the dust of the ground, and we are made in the image of Adam. Jesus is the man from heaven, and we will be, or we have we will be made into the image of Christ. And so he says that in verse 46. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. So let me back up and actually explain this. what he's talking about here is when Adam was made, God made him out of the dust of the ground. Then God breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. So there was the natural, then he became, had the spirit put within him, and he became a living being. And so what he's saying here in verse 46, is it not that the, it's not that the spiritual is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. So he gave us a natural body. That's Adam. We are made in Adam's image. The second man is from heaven. Who's that man? That's Jesus. He is God who came to earth in incarnation became a man. He is now in heaven. He is truly God, truly man. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, that's Adam, so also are those who are of the dust, that's us as is the man of heaven, that's Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. Those are those who are in Christ. Just as we have been born, have born the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. And so we all are made in the image of Adam, right? There's a sense of we have his genes, his DNA. Those who are born again, our bodies will be, Recreated, we'll be reconstituted in the image of Christ. We'll be like Christ, and so the Scripture says, we, "We know that when He appears, that's Jesus. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is." So when we see Jesus, He will transform our bodies by the power of the Holy Spirit to be like His body. Also, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, Philippians three twenty. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So here's a question. What is is the body of Jesus Christ like? If our body is going to be transformed to be like his glorious body, what was the body of Christ like? Let me give you a couple of descriptions. Luke chapter 24 describes Jesus walking down the road of Emmaus. Remember that? And to Emmaus. And he was walking down that road with other disciples. God supernaturally prevented those disciples and those other people from recognizing him. But eventually God lifted up their perception. They could see that the, the reality that this is Jesus. I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, they saw him as a human. People didn't look around and be like, is there an alien here? No, he was, he, and they actually eventually, because God allowed them to, they were able to recognize him. Jesus walked with them. Jesus sat with them. Jesus broke bread with them. Eventually, Jesus disappeared. What's that about? Well, I don't know. (laughs) And so it could be that that's because he's God and man. It could be that there are properties about our resurrected body that are different from our properties on earth. In other words, there are things that we can do. There's abilities that we might may have as resurrected individuals that we don't have on this earth. I don't really know what that's about. You know, he, he was able to pass through walls. Could we do that? I don't know. You can speculate if you want to. What does that does that relate to his nature as, as the God man, or is that to relate to him having a resurrected body? I'm not really certain. John chapter 20, verse 15, though, we see Jesus. He's speaking. Mary, she recognizes his voice. That's an interesting one. When I call, you know, hey, Joe, whatever your name is, will you recognize, and be like, hey, I think that's Ben. I think so. John chapter 21, Jesus stood on the shore. He he cooked food. He ate fish with them. He enjoyed fellowship. I mean, for 40 days, Jesus lived with the disciples and is resurrected body. What I, what I really am trying to do in this sermon is I really am trying to give you a, a, a picture in your mind of the true reality of that which is to come. If you've if you read the book Huckleberry Finn or The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Huck tells of Mrs. Watson teaching about heaven. Remember that story? And, and he tells how Mrs. Watson was saying this. She said, he said, she went on and on, told about all the good place I told about the good place. And she said, all you do is go around all day with a harp and you sing forever and ever. And his conclusion is, I don't want to do that. That sounds boring. He's like, I want to be with my friends. So I'm glad I'm not going to heaven. And honestly, the reality is, I think many people teach about heaven in that way. And therefore, many people are actually kind of scared of going to heaven. Or maybe just think like, that's really a bad place to go. I really would rather not go there. I'd rather go somewhere that's actually more enjoyable. And it's actually, it's like looking at a piece of paper that's that's blank and it's white. And we think, well, that's heaven. And what we're trying to do this sermon is, is to actually put real objects on that piece of paper to actually color that paper with reality. And so, really hope that this morning that this, These truths about heaven have helped you think about it in that way. And actually, even more than that, I really want us to have a longing to think about it more. Not not just during this hour or whatever we have here as a church where we put our mind upon heaven, but every day we're setting our minds on things which are above. C.S. Lewis observed this. If you read history, he wrote in Mere Christianity, you will find that Christians who did the most for this present world were those who thought the most of the next. Jonathan Edwards wrote this resolution in his 20s, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Let me end with this last story. In the 1600s, there was a pastor named Richard Baxter. He was... A pastor uh, England, in England, and he was plagued with physical weakness. I mean, he was in constant pain. He had a constant cough. He had bleeding from his nose on a weekly basis. He had daily migraines, digestive ailments, kidney stones, and gallstones. Now, some of you in here be like, oh, I think I have some of those too. Okay, so then you can relate with him. He was tempted because of that. He wrote... He was tempted with discouragement, with bitterness, and self-pity. And honestly, probably no one would have criticized him if he would have said, I quit, I just got to stay in bed all my life. But actually, he did the opposite. Richard Baxter worked harder than probably most preachers of that day. And why did he do that? Why did he he stay in the pulpit, keep preaching? Why did he keep visiting people in their homes? Why did he keep ministering? Well, he wrote this This is what he wrote as the answer for that. A life still near to death did me possess with a deep sense of time's great preciousness. Still thinking I had little time to live, my fervent heart to win men's souls did strive. I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. It's the reality that soon I will die. God has something better for me to come. And so I'm going to live my life today. No matter how I feel, no matter what's going on, I'm going to live for that day. Labor for the Lord now, knowing there is a resurrection to come. I mean, is that your heart? As a dying man, as a dying man, as a dying woman, as a dying child, as as someone who knows that my life is soon gonna end to dying people. That was his passion, that was his heart. And oh, church, how we need to live in the reality of resurrection. Let me ask one last question. How should the reality of resurrection change your life today? If you're without Jesus Christ, I hope and pray it will cause you to realize you don't have much time left. And today is the day to look to the Lord Jesus, confess that you're a sinner, and believe that he's the only one who can save you. And for us, church, it should change how we spend our time. It should change how we view people. It should change how we spend our money. It should change how we live our life. Labor for the Lord now, knowing there's a resurrection to come. My brothers and sisters, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, your labor is not in vain in him.